We return this morning to Matthew chapter 9. We pick up in verse 14 and consider through verse 17. Matthew 9, 14 to 17. Then came to Jesus the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often or oft? But thy disciples fast not. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth into an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent, or the hole, is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish but they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Father, we thank you this morning for this next little interaction as recorded by Matthew for our benefit to land more precisely upon exactly who Jesus is and exactly his mission in the first advent. The answer of our Lord to the inquiry brought to him in this account uniquely speaks to the devotional side of the believer's blessing. And we pray that we would in somehow get to that today, even though it is indeed an aside. But the primary thing today is that there would be a sharp and careful line drawn between personal relationship with Jesus Christ and all things religious and all things church. We are guilty sometimes of talking about church when we ought to be talking about Christ. We are guilty sometimes about talking about religion when we ought to be talking about Christ. There is just no substitution for Jesus Christ. And we pray today that you would help us to avoid the fog of words and definitions, but to land on the reality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you. For each one that is here to hear and give us now enablement of thy blessed spirit both to preach and to receive the word of God for the benefit of our souls. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. My dead buddy Spurgeon says this, beneath the robes of religion many carry a heart of 
bestow. Inward tenderness. The heart that trembles before the word of God is the thing of great price in the sight of the Almighty. The familiar Isaiah 66.2 says, God looks upon the person that is of a poor and contrite spirit. Religion is one of those words that carries many negative connotations, as it rightly ought. By and large, we do view the word religion negatively. In American society, the First Baptist Church of Elto is considered to be a religious organization. The United States Constitution has two provisions concerning religion, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause prevents government from establishing a state religion. The Free Exercise Clause protects citizens like us with the right to practice our religion as we please, so long as we do not run afoul of the law. John Piper makes a very astute observation that true Christianity is both a threat and a protection to the American constitutional system of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is the legal term for that which encompasses the Establishment Clause. The government can't dictate religion. And the Free Exercise Clause. In America, we are free to worship God as we deem best. Amen for that? Yet, Piper says, and rightfully so, that true Christianity is a threat and a protection to the concept of religious pluralism. It is a spiritual threat, and it is a political support. And there you have a very interesting line of, of demarcation, a very interesting line of delineation, upon which you and I both see religion positively and negatively. Biblical Christianity calls for repentance from all false religions and from all false forms of religion. There is only one true God of heaven and earth. Therefore, biblical Christianity is a spiritual threat to religion. Biblical Christianity is a spiritual threat to Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims. Biblical Christianity is a spiritual threat to externalism and hypocrisy, 
wherever it is found, even within the umbrella of Christianity. Yet, King Jesus forbids that his cause, the gospel cause, the kingdom cause, the cause of truth and life, would ever be advanced by the sword. We do not convince people to trust in Jesus Christ by means of 357. As in, I'm packing, and you better bow the knee. No, there are no external coercions in words or deeds in regards to the blessedness of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Politically, 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 we are pro-religion. Spiritually, we are anti-religion. I bring you that big picture this morning of all things religious because our text today records the spiritual threat of the Lord Jesus Christ to the religious rituals of Judaism. Matthew continues to help us correctly see the Lord Jesus as to his person and mission by a series of accounts, each involving a key question. That question for today, as seen in verse 14, has to do with why the disciples of Jesus did not practice ritual or routine fasting when in fact the Pharisees did, as did the disciples of John the Baptizer. There's a contrast here, even though the two groups are referenced together. Uh, John's disciples commonly fasted for the purpose of sorrow over Israel's sin. Pharisees fasted as a sign of religious commitment. Big difference. John's disciples fasted over the sorrow of Israel's sin, but the Pharisees fasted simply as a show, a sign of their great religious commitment. Now, I believe it would have been easy uh, to dismiss this inquiry if it had come from the Pharisees alone, because they had already proven their disdain for the Lord Jesus. But this question comes from John's followers. And so Jesus, I believe, with tenderness and phenomenal insight, answers them as only he could. Appointed days for fasting are, even now, a part of Judaism and also large segments of Christianity. 
with the topic of fasting and feasting once again introduced in this record, we hear the Lord illustrate the difference between religion and relational reality with the one true God. The thing that I have by way of my task today, the preacher's task, is to try to be clear with language when in some ways, especially of use, the language isn't clear. Would I ever recommend not going to church? Well, of course. So would you. And yet sometimes people talk about church like it's the thing. Is church the thing? Some people talk about church like it's the thing. And in some ways, I guess I could say, well, it kind of is a thing. If construed correctly, it's a helpful, blessed thing. But one thing for sure is that the church is not exactly Christ. And to what I just said about the church, I could say about religion. You have a hard time speaking about religion negatively when there are elements of positivity that are connected to the definition of that word. And we have a hard time speaking negatively about the church when there are certainly positives to be associated with biblical eschatology and biblical ecclesiology, last things in church, as they come together in the life of the New Testament believer. But nonetheless, People have a tendency to think about it and not rightly think about him. And I need to tell you again this morning, it's always about him. It's always about him. It's always about him. It's never about it. And so therefore, we want to be clear as to Christ. Jewish rabbis teach that fasting is the means to bring a person to teshuva. Teshuva is the Hebrew word for repentance. Interestingly, on the biblical calendar, there is only one commanded day of fasting year by year, and that would be on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Jewish people today, however, observe a plethora of annual fast days. There are three fasting days associated with the ancient exile of the Jewish people. There are additional fast days that lament the destruction of the temple and modern tragedies and atrocities like the Holocaust. And I'm quite confident that as Israel goes forward in days ahead, that October 7th will become a fast day concerning the aspect of most recent events on the Jewish calendar. All that said, there is no New Testament command or instruction for believers fasting. The point of emphasis is placed upon prayer and the focus of one's heart upon 
the Lord. Now, the Pharisees fasted twice a week as a demonstration of their high commitment to God. And they would be glad to tell you that they fasted twice a week. I have found that many people who religiously engage in fasting are more than happy to post it on Facebook or more than happy to tell you about it at work or more than happy to declare it at school because there is something about all religious activity that uh, garners the accolades and the appreciation of men. Back in the in the Baptist Sunday school days, we used to have pins. And when you were faithful in attendance, they would add layers to your metal pin. And uh, my pin uh, never got beyond the original pin because my dad was a hunter and I was often gone on the weekends to hunt as a boy. So even though I was faithful to church, I, as a boy, I, I never got the pin. I'm telling you, Sherry's pin starts on her chest and goes all the way to her toes. I mean, she looks like General Sherry Teal when she puts on her Sunday school pin. And uh, she hasn't worn it for years. Every once in a while, I get it out and just swing it before her so that she sees it. But I mean, man, she was on it. She was on it. She never missed. She never missed. I'm sure there were Sundays when some mother said, take that snotty-nosed kid home. But she never missed. She never missed. That's religion. Religion rewards perfect attendance. Religion delights itself in things achieved and accomplished. The followers of John were taught the righteous value of restricting oneself as to eating and drinking as a means to seriously contemplating one's heartfelt response to God in relationship to sin. They did not share the cold-hearted posture of the Pharisees and were likely confronting the arrest and the imprisonment of John the baptizer even as they came to Jesus with this question. Furthermore, we know that John the baptizer had long been telling his followers that they should be following the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. The legitimate, restrictive manner of John, in contrast to the Lord Jesus, resurfaces again in the record of Matthew chapter 11. But for right now, all I want to say about that is that the question asked and answered of the Lord concerning fasting allows us to differentiate between religion and right relations with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus had come, according to verse 13 in the former study, to call sinners to repentance. Since it was believed that fasting was a means to repentance, the question is asked, 
because the disciples of the Lord Jesus were not fasting. His approach to life in ministry did not conform to the religious expectations of that day. The Lord employs three illustrations in response, all of which help us to differentiate between religion and spiritual reality. Religion demands external conformity, but is often corrupt internally. Reality of relationship with God through Jesus Christ is internally rich, externally consistent, and eternally secure. One more time. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ is internally rich, externally consistent, and eternally secure. Now, our Lord illustrates the difference between religion and spiritual reality with a wedding banquet. Verse 15, And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Notice the word fast and the word mourn parallel each other because fasting is about mourning. And when you are really mourning, you don't care to eat. Fasting and mourning go together. In the New Testament period, a wedding banquet and festivity would commonly last seven days. The friends or attendants of the groom would be uh, fasting uh, uh, maybe before that opportunity came, but certainly not once that opportunity came uh, in the company of the groom. They shared in the groom's company. They shared in the, in, the, in the groom's joy. Now, I know what it's like pastorally to go from the emotions of a funeral at 11 to a wedding at 2 and a funeral at 6. And believe me when I tell you, that was a long and emotionally draining day. But the reality is almost everybody would uh, uh, almost immediately uh, understand that a wedding is intended to be a happy thing for everybody, Maybe not the father of the bride. I don't know about that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the wedding is to be a happy thing. And here uh, you have the groomsmen who are sharing in the joy of their Lord. Jesus uses the occasion to predict his coming arrest and crucifixion with the words following the logic for not fasting. He said, the time's coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. Yeah, all the way to the cross. And then Jesus said, when that happens, 
these disciples of mine, they'll fast. They'll mourn when the groom is gone. And of course, they're not once he's back. But fasting is always connected to sadness and sorrow. Had the Pharisees and the disciples of John recognized Jesus as the Messiah, they too would have had occasion to rejoice and not mourn or not fast. Repenting of sin is a good thing, but Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Jesus has the power to forgive all our sin. And so the logic here of the wedding is, why get stuck in feeling bad when you can enter into the joy and the forgiveness of your Lord? Why get stuck feeling bad when you can enter into the joy of the Lord? The Pharisees and John's disciples needed to repent of their repenting. Both. The Pharisees needed to repent of their repenting because their repenting wasn't real. And even John's disciples needed to repent of their repenting because though they rightly viewed the devastations of the nation's sins, they were not quick, as they ought to be quick, to latch on to the person and the work of King Jesus. Religion promotes hang-ups. Religion is consistent in that it is often hypocritical. The recognized presence of the Lord is joyful. Wedding joy, happy, blessed. One of the reasons that I do not uh, teach fasting as a discipline for God's people today is because I believe that the Lord is indeed present in the lives of his people by means of the endowment of the Holy Spirit. And if he is here in the midst of the gathering of believers then we as believers have good occasion for joy. Even if the weak has borne for us plenty of prompters towards sorrow. Many are the afflictions of God's people, but the Lord delivers them from them all. The wedding, I'll come back to it if I have time. I really hope I have time because the devotional thing here is just wow. But I want to teach the text before we get to the devotional thought. Number two, the Lord illustrates the difference between religion and spiritual reality by a wardrobe. I call it a blemish. I could call it a blowout. I think blowout is probably the better word. So if you cross off blemish on your outline, and put in blowout, I think that would maybe say it better. But the Lord illustrates the difference between religion and spiritual reality with a wardrobe blowout. 
Verse 16. No man putteth a piece of new cloth into an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment. And the rent, the hole, the blow up, is made worse. The cloth of the ancient world was not pre-shrunk cloth. If you ripped your britches and you patched your britches with new cloth, it would, in a very short time, tear into even a bigger hole uh, than what you had to begin with. Now, of course, in the modern area, the more holes you got in your britches, the better it seems you are. I don't believe that, but nonetheless, that seems to be the trend. Uh, Jesus uses this illustration to underscore the fact that Religious efforts directed onto eternal, I'm sorry, external ritual and self-righteousness cannot be repaired. I love the thought of reformation, but it's not enough for me. My sinful soul demands regeneration, a new life in Christ, not just a patched up old life, not just a thing made better, but the best thing brought to me in Jesus Christ. Our Lord's offer of kingdom life was new cloth or new clothing. He wasn't seeking to repair the old covenant. He had come to establish the new covenant. He wasn't seeking to repair the religious system based upon the traditions of men, to be sure, but to completely replace that. He had come to work with sinners, not with those self-righteous. Religion is something we believe and do. Christ is someone we know and trust. Religion is something we believe and do. Christ is someone we know and trust. Religion is the pursuit of God on human terms. True followers of Christ certainly believe and do things, but their focus is upon knowing and trusting Jesus Christ. Religion can change a person on the outside, but Christ changes a person from the heart. Number three, the Lord illustrates the difference between religion and spiritual reality with a wineskin bottle, which is not a bottle at all, as a good number of you know. Neither do men put new wine into old flask bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Uh, The flask of skin 
was used in ancient times to hold liquids. The water, the juice preserved, would keep the inner lining of that skin, sewn skin, moist. But of course, the outside would dry and crack. Once the flask was emptied, it could not be used again for loss of its flexibility, putting new juice into old skin ensured disaster and loss. Now Jesus uses that very common illustration in that day to stress the fact that religion could not be incorporated into the kingdom life, nor less could kingdom life be incorporated into religion. Religion is dangerous. Let me say it again. Religion is dangerous, not because it's all bad, but because it is often good enough to turn our trust away from Christ. Religion is often good enough. It's not that it's so bad, but it's often good enough to keep us from personal embrace of Jesus Christ. I've often said, but everyone here depends either on the Savior or on some system. And that would be a human system. Jesus wasn't in any way destroying the significance of the Old Testament law by these illustrations. He came to fulfill the law, not destroy it. God has always been interested in heartfelt response, not just external ritual. Religious activity is dangerous because it feels like it's working when it really isn't. Religion, and I might say in modern parlance, church, often produces false hopes. Religion cannot love you. Religion cannot bring you to God the Father. Religion cannot give you peace or make you acceptable with God. But Christ can and will today if you look to him. Now here's where I'm going to insert that devotional thing. Jesus uses three illustrations to depict the reality of relationship with him in contrast with religion, especially that as practice by the Pharisees. You have a wedding, you have a wardrobe, and you have wineskin. If you believe that Jesus is sovereign God, 
and he would never use any illustrations that didn't have far deep, deeper profundity than what we would initially grasp or know. Then you can follow with me a little bit as I take off on a little bit of a devotional tangent here. Having exegeted the text for you, you know what the text means. And now I'm leaving interpretation and I'm going to Christian application and going to fuss over it just a little bit. Although I tell you, I'd like to fuss it over a lot, a lot more than what I'm going to. Nonetheless, the Christian life is depicted in this particular context. The kingdom life is depicted here by the king, by the Lord Jesus, in company with his disciples. Jesus is with them, they're with Jesus. That's kind of the way I describe my life with the Lord. That's kind of the way you describe your life with the Lord, is it not? He's with us, we're with him. He's with us, we're with him. And so our lives are depicted by a wedding. Our lives are depicted by a wardrobe. Our lives are depicted by a wineskin. Now think about this, think about this. First key word I'd give you devotionally is the word endearment. The thing that's so cool about a wedding is that it involves people that love each other. And there is endearment. In Christ, I find endearment with and for God. In Christ, I find endearment. The illustration of a wedding evokes endearment. The illustration of uh, the wardrobe, uh, 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 here's key word, envelopment. Envelopment. We sing. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I am enveloped and dressed in Christ. That's a beautiful thing to think about. My mind goes back to the garden and how that Adam and Eve for themselves, provided what? Fig leaves. And what have you often heard me say? Those fig leaves represent religion, man-made religion. And yet God would put them in skins of sacrifice. God would envelop them in the bloody skins of sacrifice and dress those dear ones in his righteousness. Endearment, what a joy, what a blessing to be loved of God and to love him back who loved us first. Envelopment, what a blessed reality of our position and standing. And then the third word is the word endowment. The uh, the idea of juice in the skin, or juice in the bottle, or the spirit in the body, is a picture of fullness. Now let me take those words one more time. Endearment emphasizes the theological truth of sovereign selection. The truth of envelopment represents the truth of sovereign salvation. And the truth of endowment represents the truth of sovereign service. In those three pictures, the wedding, 
the wardrobe, and the wineskin, you have a clear engagement, indication of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in relationship to you and me in Christ. In Christ. By looking to Jesus and placing our faith in him, the soul becomes eternally secure. We call that salvation. By looking to Jesus and maintaining faith in him, the soul becomes internally stable and relationally rich. We call that sanctification. One more time. By placing faith in Christ, the soul becomes eternally secure. That's salvation. By looking to Christ, uh, the soul becomes internally stable and relationally rich. And we call that sanctification. That's why our ongoing prayers for you and yours is that you might know him and grow in the grace and the knowledge of him. For he is the ultimate threat to all false religion and form. He alone is the Redeemer King and the Rock of Ages. This month we're going to sing in response at the conclusion of the worship hour, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. It's found on page 209 in your hymn book. The double cure, referenced in verse 1, involves the cleansing of the guilt of sin, that's salvation. And it also involves the empowerment of life over sin's power. That's called sanctification. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our sanctification. There is only one that can cleanse you and me, and that one is Jesus Christ the Lord. Whatever your soul needs, whatever my soul needs this morning, you will find your needs satisfied in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's how the Lord answered the question, why don't your disciples fast? And the crass answer is, can't fast, we're having a party. Father, help 